The 2016 presidential campaign has been just a little raucous, to say the least. We have at least one presidential candidate who has promised constituents if he's elected, he'll shut down the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. In stark contrast, there are others who have focused their attention on the potential harmful impact to children of lead in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, and possible missteps along the way. For whatever reason, it seems like environmental issues like auto emissions, air and water pollution always generate controversy. And our guest today on Stats and Stories knows a thing or two about getting the ear of a president and having them actually listen to his advice. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our discussion today is going to focus on the importance of studies about our environment. Before we talk to our special guest, our Stats and Stories reporter James Steinbauer spoke with a Miami University scientist about another water-related issue besides lead. The city of Flint, Michigan, finalized its decision to switch from purchasing clean, treated water from Lake Huron to the Flint River in late April 2014. What city officials didn't know was that the cheaper, untreated water would also bring dangerous levels of lead to the homes of Flint residents. The issues in Flint have sparked a national conversation on the safety of drinking water. Much of that conversation has revolved around lead, but Miami University scientist Jim Orris has spent much of his career studying mercury and says the environmental and health effects of the metal are just as insidious as lead's. Like lead, mercury has devastating effects on the nervous system of humans and animals who ingest it. However, Orris says that unlike lead, where half of the metal is excreted through urine and sweat, mercury doesn't leave. It really never goes away. So over your lifetime, you tend to accumulate everything that you've ingested. So even though it may not be toxic to an individual fish, over time, because you accumulate it and you don't excrete it, it can come to toxic levels. Or says this process is called biomagnification or bioaccumulation. When someone eats a fish that has small amounts of methylmercury, that metal is never excreted from their body. Every bit that they eat stays with them. So if a person eats a fish with one unit of mercury in it today, they have one unit in their body. If they eat another fish tomorrow with one unit, they now have two units, and so on. One of Forrest's studies took place on Isle Royale, a national park in the middle of Lake Superior, where he tried to figure out why some lakes tend to have higher levels of mercury in them and their fish than others. Orris and his team looked at mercury levels in fish and in sediment profiles. They even took core samples from the past several hundred years of sediments. So we looked at historical samples and we looked at contemporary samples to see what trends there were in mercury accumulation in fish. They found that up through the late 60s, mercury increased over time. But in 1969, around the time the Clean Air Act was passed, the levels of mercury began to decrease. So what we found was that you could detect when coal burning started in large quantities through the combination of measuring how much sulfur there was in the sediments and correlating that with the amount of mercury that was in the sediments. Or says that while the Clean Air Act has decreased the amount of mercury in U.S. lakes and streams, the metal is still a health risk. Well, right now, for mercury consumption in fish, all 50 states have a fish consumption advisory for specific kinds of fish. Or says the fish people should worry about are at the top of the food chain, fish that eat other fish, and fish that are old. In Ohio, for example, large northern pike, or old largemouth bass, would be fish of concern. But tuna, swordfish, marlin, the type of fish one would find at a local sushi joint, are all fish that can contain large levels of mercury. For Stats and Stories, I'm James Steinbauer. 
Joining me on Stats and Stories are our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest is Barry Nussbaum. He worked for the US EPA for four decades, and he recently retired after nearly a decade as the chief statistician of that agency. Barry also was the branch chief in charge of the successful effort to eliminate harmful lead from gasoline. And he's currently president-elect of the American Statistical Association. Barry, we welcome you to our show. Thank you. You know, I think adults who've been around since back when you started at EPA in the in the mid-70s, they can remember the belching smokestacks. They can remember the polluted streams, the littering problems, all those kinds of things uh, that we've had. And, of course, we live in a much, not a perfect world, obviously, but a cleaner world than, than back then. Why is it, though, I guess I've often wondered why uh, our society just has a, such a, or a part of our society has such a negative view of any time we talk about changing the environment or improving the environment. Frequently, Bob, I think the reason you get that view is not that they're thinking about changing or improving the environment, but what might be the downside. So where they could see perhaps an expensive improvement to the environment, they also say, hmm, we may lose some jobs. I don't think, personally, I don't think that's correct. I think we've made some great strides. And uh, it's kind of fun to be talking uh, here in Ohio because it was your own Lake Cuyahoga that was on fire that caused some of the concerns. So I think we put that one out, Bob. <laughs> but going back to that era, though, back in the mid-'70s when you first got started, I know you had the ear of President Carter on the whole issue of the harmful impact of lead in gasoline. And I'm just kind of curious, uh, that was back in the early days of yes. EPA, how – you got his attention on that particular issue and how you showed him uh, the studies that, that proved your point that you wanted to make. It, it relates actually to your first question. You may remember back then we had the Arab oil embargo. We had gasoline lines. We had people having a very difficult time obtaining gasoline. It turns out that when uh, oil was embargoed, crude oil was embargoed, you could actually get more gasoline out of a barrel of crude oil if you allowed a little more lead into it. You wouldn't have to refine it as much. So here was a question facing the country. Should we allow a little more lead in our gasoline and stretch those supplies a little? Or because of the harmful effects of lead, we should continue with our lead phase down program. And I was the lucky guy who actually made a graph that ended up on the desk of the President of the United States, President Carter, that showed a correlation between blood lead in children, the actual amount of lead in their blood, and the lead used in gasoline. The correlation was incredible. One glance at that graph will say, oh my gosh, there's a connection here. And uh, I know Professor Baylor will sit here and say, wait a minute, correlation does not imply causation. Didn't you ever learn statistics? I'm well aware of that. Um, that was the same comment President Carter had. He uh, said, sure. get me Nussbaum on the phone. You know, correlation doesn't imply causation. Uh, the president looked at that, and we actually divided it, uh, blood lead in uh, minority groups, Hispanic and blacks, and uh, they had a more deleterious effect. And he just did not want to be responsible for this harmful health situation. So he allowed the EPA to continue to remove lead from gasoline. So it was a point where our analytic work 
actually made it to the, you know, the chief decision maker in the United States. Very gratifying for a federal employee, but even more gratifying that I think health won out. John Baylor will go to you for the next question for Barry. Well, it sounds like there there was also the, the the weighing of the type of error you wanted to make in a decision that was part of that. I mean, you you could uh, keep removing the lead when it was really you didn't need to, or right. you could you could let it st- remain in the in the the fuel and when you should be taking it out. So it sounds like right. the you know you know maybe the President Carter was doing some 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 weighing of uh, decision errors. Well, well, yes, he had to balance the this this public desire to get gasoline and avoid fuel lines versus a health situation. But that's what's so critical in our profession. I mean, I've spent 40 years giving things to decision makers who are always balancing things. And if you can make an effective argument, maybe even more than effective, if you can make it concise and something that they can understand, so communication's the key, that was probably my success in the whole, in the whole career. Richard Campbell. Uh, to follow up on that, Barry, um, it sounds like one of the things that you've done is to try to explain data analytics to decision makers who have to make uh, hard decisions that often involve weighing a number of things. This is not totally dissimilar to what journalists have to do, and when they explain, they have to explain to the general public in common sense language. Uh, issues that are often full of data and numbers and are are hard to understand. You've probably developed some techniques for doing this over time, for talking to decision makers. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and maybe what maybe one of your sort of hardest hurdles was in in this? Well, you're absolutely right, Richard. The trick is, and I have a paper on that, uh, it's not what you say, it's not what they hear, it's what they say they heard. <laughs> and uh, what I've learned is, and I think many statistics departments and the way I was trained is we are, are trained to give presentations and to make them fairly clear, but that is only part one. You as the journalist are gonna hear something. So I hope you're hearing the right thing. And that is only part two. Mm-hmm. Part three is when you start to write something and say what I just said, And uh, I remember early on, one of my division directors, I was quoted in the Detroit Free Press and like an excited new employee, there was my name in print. (laughs) And what he told me was, Barry, whatever they said, you said, you said. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. So my job, Richard, is to make sure that what you write is the correct thing. And what do I use? I use kind of an echo chamber, if you will. I will look at the reporter and say, so, so tell me, what did, what did you get out of it? And their job, and I understand it, they have to write it as concisely as possible. They have to make a point. I know what they have to do. But I will try to get a little echo, try to find out what they think they're saying, because that's so terribly important to me, at least. That's interesting, because it's a, when we talk about interviewing uh, news sources, and when they have a really important, they know they have a quote they want to use. One of our techniques is to say, always get your subject to repeat that quote. Oh. <laughs> so you know that you got it right. And also to slow down to make sure you get it right. Always, And usually compliment them. That's a really good quote. I'd like to use that in the story. Can you repeat that again? 
Oh, so. wow, Richard. So all those compliments were really just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Gee, thanks. That's right. Report, does report does that end this tricks. program? Yeah, yeah right. Well, I, as, a, as a reporter, I remember a lot of times when I talked to somebody who was like in, in the environmental protection business, we, we oftentimes would, I, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. So sometimes I would, would try to, you know, make sure that I had it right so that I wouldn't, as, you, as you're uh, alluding to right. get it wrong so that you're misquoted in in the paper as to, as right. to what you're and saying. And a lot of our stuff is complex. Right. I mean, in the mm-hmm. environmental, the health relationship, which is why, uh, if I've also done anything that was successful, I had to immerse myself into what is that all about? What are the health? I mean, when we were doing lead in gasoline or automobile emissions, what was the engineering? What's going on here? Let me understand that. It is very easy for a statistician to make huge mistakes if they don't understand the physical problem going on. So I learned a heck of a lot of nomenclature about automobiles and reciprocating engines and stuff like that. (laughs) Wow. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And we're focused on environmental issues uh, today with our show with Barry Nussbaum, our special guest. He's currently president-elect of the American Statistical Association and recently retired after 40 years with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Along with me on the panel today, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell, you know, you mentioned auto emissions. We went through a, a controversial time back in the probably mid-90s, I think it was, where our area was placed in e-check uh, for auto emissions. Mm-hmm. We had to take our cars in to get them checked. One of the things I discovered that I didn't know from talking to one of the employees was that there were a lot of these people who were taking out the auto emission systems or, you know, disabling them. And... Was that part of the problem back then that um, – I don't, I don't think people realized the harmful impact of, of the action that was being taken there. I'm glad you asked that, Bob. One of my very, very first tasks at EPA was to develop a motor vehicle tampering survey. How many people were ripping off emission control equipment, putting BBs in the EGR valve? And maybe for one of Richard's questions, I had to learn what an EGR valve was. <laughs> And they said, Barry, we think this is going on. How much of it is going on? And it was a uh, – so I worked with some engineers. And at those days, they were, you know, uh, add-on devices to right. curb emissions. So the thought was, well, well, if we can add them off or subtract them out, maybe we get the muscle cars back again. So how much of this was going on? So I designed a, a survey which was just not – so easy. We, we went out to places that did not have an emissions check but had a safety check. And while the cars were there, we had some of our engineers look at it, and I uh, devised the sampling. I also learned a terribly important lesson. The statistician has to go out in the field and watch how it's being implemented. So when I went out there, I found out with a big husky guy next to me looking under a hood that he didn't check the EGR valve for BBS. Why not? So he looked at me and says, hey, buddy, don't you know on Fords they put them too close to the manifold? You can burn yourself. You go try it if you like it. And I go, whoa, I mean, there's a problem here. So you have to see what's going on. We learned, though, in those early days, percentage of cars with at least one emission control tampered with or blocked up or something was 19%. It was very 
large. That led to a whole new program we had enforcing uh, where muffler shops and repair facilities would rip stuff off. And uh, I think we curbed a lot of that, although now, now the car is a lot more integrated. It would probably not be so easy to do no, that today. In today's world, it would be harder to do yes. that than yes. it was back in those yeah. days. So I don't want you after this broadcast going out to your car <laughs> trying to do something. No, like I don't even think changing the oil is possible anymore. It's too hard to do. John Baylor. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing you say, Barry, is the value of kind of embedding to understand a problem, you know, to make sure that you do that. I mean, I, it seems like there's there's also an, uh, an analog for, for journalists to kind of Im- embed to understand kind of the reporting of of quantitative information. I, I, you know, that's sort of in the same spirit of strategies for succinctly presenting results. I mean, what, what kind of suggestions would you have for a journalist that wanted to cover a very complicated quantitative story or maybe a story that has a lot of modeling of, of some mm-hmm. responses? Uh, the simple suggestion is to say, sit down and talk to us. Uh, one journalist, the late Vic Cohn, did that. Yeah. And uh, wrote a book on it. Yes, uh, I had it autographed. I was very happy about that. <laughs> Came down to an EPA conference on statistics. And fantastic. I mean, I think we made him the main speaker. But then he sat down and he chatted with us about a lot of health effects and so forth. And he was really striving to learn what's it all about. Now, I'm well aware most journalists today uh, have not just the old, you know, write a story and get in tomorrow morning's newspaper, but the online and the, it's very rapid. So I understand the pressures they have, but, oh, if they can't spend the time with us, I think we have to spend the time with them. And that's why succinctly explaining it and saying, now, now let me understand what did you think is probably the best compromise we can do. Richard Campbell. To, to follow up on that, do you, are there things that you see journalists do that, uh, kind of recurring mistakes that just drive you nuts. And uh, and we talked earlier about yeah. the cor- difference between correlation and causation. That's one that's come up before. But can you think of an example? Oh, yeah. I mean, my, fav- my favorite, of course, is always let's get to the average. I, I, I mean, uh, we can come up with confidence intervals. We come up with ranges. We know in presenting things to our decision makers, you have to say the what if and how sensitive it is. And if you make a little mistake, does it matter and then you read the journalist and you know the answer was 18.46 which which is a <laughs> foolish degree of precision but it was the average and yeah if there's one thing that irks me uh i i guess that that might be it uh uh the the, the story i always tell so how do i combat that the story yes. i always tell about averages is to say that i've looked at the data very very carefully uh, in the Miami area, not Miami in Ohio, but Miami in Florida, um, where one of my children live, uh, if you look at the data very carefully, you'll find the average citizen in Miami is born Hispanic but dies Jewish. <laughs> and getting people to understand, whoa, look how we used average all wrong, sometimes helps a lot. Very good. Thank you. John Baylor, go back for you for the next question. So. You, you served as the chief statistician of the U.S. EPA. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the, the, the chief statistician of a, of a, federal, a federal agency? Uh, good question, John. Uh, I always tell people the chief statistician is not the best statistician, but is probably the one who can communicate the best. Uh, I also tell people when I was named chief statistician, the first call that came in 
was from a guy who said, Barry, uh, I met you once at a meeting, and uh, you may not remember me, but um, my son has this homework problem, and if you have three balls that are in, you know, that type of thing, uh, if you can explain things, that's what the chief statistician does. Chief statistician represents EPA in a lot of federal, uh, federal forms with other agencies. Chief statistician tries to get the rest of our statisticians to be uh, uh, a, a little more open. They're, they're kind of a shy bunch. And uh, if I can get them out to say, hey, we do some good statistics, that helps. Um, so I think it's the great communicator. I used to say cynically, it, uh, the chief statistician is when I flip a coin, they have to listen. But it uh, <laughs> wasn't quite that. <laughs> I, I do remember an experience I had in a cleanup situation in Hamilton, Ohio, called Chemdyne, where they were allowing all kinds of toxic materials leaching out of barrels into the soil and into the in, right next to the Great Miami River. That's where they were, were located. And I remember this guy from EPA was trying to explain what the problem was, but he was doing it in all scientific terms. And I remember just saying to him, could you explain for someone who lives across the street from this, what the what the risk and i mean he did this beautiful explanation so i i really, I really learned that i think sometimes as when you're a statistician and you're used to studying things uh you're not used to putting it in common terms and i think that's what you're saying is that to me that's one of the tricks that you have to be able to do in in your line of work what's what's this mean to me as a person well there are two things it's not just that the statistician has the problem yeah but being in government work we frequently wordsmith and carefully work regulation right. language and so forth so we're taught to be so ever so careful which is why to you it sounds like wow this is a complex <laughs> yeah. uh, explanation of something so I have, and maybe as chief statistician, you get a little more license to do that. I've gone out on a limb a little bit and tried to make it more in English and, and have done it effectively. But you've got to be careful because right. there will be a lawyer who says, well, you know, the regulation really implied such and such. And you kind of, you know, mm -hmm. waltz over. But sometimes I think you have to do that to make the uh, uh, the public understand better. And I think it's worthwhile that we do. But uh, as an example, um, when I worked with gasoline and additives, EPA has about six different definitions for refinery, all for good reasons for what you're regulating. And they make sense when you're doing the regulation. But if I were to look at you, Bob, and say refinery, I know what you're thinking of something that's, you know. So I, I have to realize that when I'm talking to you. Right. Listening to Stats and Stories and our discussion today is focusing on the statistical studies about our environment. And our special guest we're very pleased to have with us today is Barry Nussbaum, who worked for US EPA for 40 years and recently retired after nearly a decade as the chief statistician of that agency. And Barry also uh, was uh, the research chief in charge of uh, the successful effort to eliminate harmful lead from gasoline, as we mentioned earlier. Currently, president-elect of the American Statistical Association. I'm Bob Long. Along with me are our regular panelists, Miami University Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell and Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. And I'm going to go to Richard for our next question. Bob just mentioned that you you worked for the EPA for a long time, and I wanted to ask you about uh, that means you've worked under different administrations, and in in your daily work, how did that impact being, you know, having a Republican uh, administration versus a Democratic uh, administration, and also the sort of recent trend 
sort of data denier, science denier that we're in. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure, Richard. The first question about uh, Republicans and Democrats, it turns out if you had a good analytical argument and a reason, a health-related reason for doing something, uh, they both listened. I mean, if you had mm -hmm. to make a global comment, maybe the Democrats wanted to do more and the Republicans focused on just a few things, but they did listen. And if we came up with a good argument, uh, I'm, I'm kind of happy to say I can't generalize very easily mm -hmm. Republican and Democrat. Your second question worries me a little bit more. Uh, I think we used to have a lot more uh, of the public behind us in what we're doing. Maybe that mm -hmm. was because there was a river on fire and belching smoke, and we've been successful. Right. Uh, if uh, and, and And as a measure of our success, about half a year ago, I was in China. I mean, some of their air pollution problems... Uh, gosh, Richard, you don't need any metering device to know that. I mean, you can walk <laughs> off the airplane and understand it. So I'm very proud of our accomplishments, but I can also see that as you've accomplished a lot, it's not quite as obvious what's still out there. And I think we've lost a little of that public behind us. Do you, do you think that's this sort of knee-jerk, just an anti-government feeling that the EPA is part of the government and and people aren't sort of making the fine distinctions about what it's actually accomplished for us and improved the quality of our lives over time? Well, that, that, that's part of, of course, of a bigger <laughs> question I frequently get since I live in the Washington area where people want to know what is the government doing, and sometimes <laughs> it's hard for me to answer that, too. Yes, I know there's less confidence in the government. Certainly a piece of that goes to EPA and a piece of it goes to many other agencies. Wow. So, yeah, we're, we're in with the pack there. <laughs> John Baylor, we'll go to you for the next question. So if you think, reflect back on your career, what do you see as, as kind of the, the biggest success story of the work that you've done? And in particular, where kind of s some insight that you've had from a, an analysis, some statistical modeling, something that, that really has, has shaped a direction for, for an EPA policy. All right. The biggest impact definitely getting lead out of gasoline. That has been cited as one of the achievements we had that was not just like being on a treadmill, running in place just to make sure things don't get worse. This had positive results. You can look at blood lead levels much lower now. So that in terms of achievement and a personal achievement, of course, getting something on the desk of the President of the United States. I mean, if you're a federal employee, that's as, that's as good as it gets. Uh, some of the more fun things, uh, testifying in court, uh, the United States of America versus Chrysler Corporation. And I thought the United States of America was like our attorney general. It wasn't. It was some kid out of, you know, law school in our division. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it turned into a David versus Goliath thing, which we won. And the reason I loved it is it a personal achievement we had to put together. The engineering, the legal, the technical, the statistical, the analytic, the whole package, and very different from other government work, presented to a judge who's going to declare a winner. I mean, this is not writing a memo that some guy's going to change and might end up in a regulation three years from now. Somebody's going to win this case, and I'm proud to say we did. Which, which, which case was that against this Chrysler? Was, this was some 1975 model year, pretty big muscle cars that uh, on the road, this is what made it interesting, on the assembly line they were fine. But as you drove them on the road, the carbon monoxide went sky high. Ah. But the trick was how do you test cars on the road when you and I are driving them? If I were to go to you, Bob, and say, can I borrow your car for a test? I don't know how anxious you'd be. <laughs> yeah, so right. I had to dream up of an incentive, a dream an incentive 
to get you to bring the car in. So there was a lot involved. Mm -hmm. And it was a very good feeling to uh, win a case. Now, uh, John would appreciate this. He can guide some of his students. After I testified in this case, about three months, four months later was my own dissertation defense. And that became a piece of cake comparing to testifying in court. So there, there are ways to make that easier. You know, you talked about your efforts with lead and gasoline. What I think is still shocking to people is the content of lead in water supplies. In Flint's one issue, I was reading an article, it was in USA Today, I believe, just a few weeks ago, about the number of schools and things like that that had high lead content in water. So you mentioned, yes, that the world is cleaner, but we still have a lot of issues like that. So how much how much of a problem do you think it is, that the, the lead content in water? Because, again, children are often cited frequently. Right. It, it's Unfortunately, Bob, it's still a big problem. I naively thought when we got lead out of gasoline, and that, by the way, came after we got lead out of house paint. Mm-hmm. And these were the two big problems. The trouble is there were a lot of older houses that mm-hmm. kids would still eat lead. Right. I am told, by the way... Lead chips are sweet. There is a reason Mm. children eat them. I didn't know that. I don't try it on my own. Um, So I thought the lead in paint and the lead in gasoline would solve primarily the problem. It turns out that between older housing and this terrible situation in Flint, Michigan, I mean, lead is there. It is a big problem. Um, Apparently, it still is. What advice might you have for training the next generation of of statisticians or, or journalists that, that want to work with decision makers and, and government and beyond, but, but also environmental science in general. Okay. For the next generation, and I wouldn't say statisticians are just journalists, I'm concerned about lots of people who do analytic work, who have access to big statistical packages, R or something like that, who don't call themselves statisticians or who don't call themselves journalists, but do a lot of analytical work. I would like them to do it correctly. I would like them to explain it succinctly, uh, then I think we can put our, uh, uh, our, our combined resources together. And remember, my emphasis has always been on what is the problem you want to solve. So immerse yourself in that. Uh, the joke I used to tell is, I mean, we would have lots of people come to me as the chief statistician. And either they would say, my boss told me to come in, what should the sample size be? And I say, you mind telling me what the problem is, you know, uh, what well, they told me I had to come here and get the sample size. And uh, much like this will date myself, but the uh, 19, I think it was 67 or 68 uh, 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 movie, The Graduate, the word was plastics. All right. <laughs> I would say stratify. And they'd never thought of that, you know, in the terms of, oh, here's something that's important. So it's the communication, I think, between what you're doing. I mean, the other problem was, uh, Many managers would say, we had an analytic piece of work. Did you run it by Barry? And the answer is, yeah, we went right by Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Campbell, we'll go to you for our, for our final question today. This follows up on John's question about, you know, what can we do as educators to, uh, to help, help train students better? And this, was, this is a personal question. You got into the business of having to explain to the general public and to decision makers are there things that you wish you would have had as an undergrad that helped you uh, do this kind of work? Or was this, were you just sort of self-taught? After a while, you just became a better communicator and you sort of figured it out on your own. Uh, I was self-taught. Uh, I was forced into it. I remember the first or second day 
they started throwing environmental terms. Uh, my favorite one was Ciprovision. I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I went home and I looked. I didn't know if it started with a C or an S. I looked it up. It turned out it was State Implementation Plan Revision. I had no idea. <laughs> and it hit me right away. Gosh, Barry, you better learn their nomenclature. And if you do, you know what? They're going to lean over and learn some of yours as well. And that cooperative, collaborative uh, uh, model uh, helped me for years and years. Very good. Barry Nussbaum, we want to thank you very much for joining us and sharing all of your wonderful insights about uh, the U.S. EPA on Stats and Stories today. Thank you. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, you can send us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we always try to focus on the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.